I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Recorded in front of a live studio audience. Kyle's Cooking Corner. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Kyle's Cooking Corner. I'm Kyle. Do you alternate between bursts of purposeful motivation and the existential dread satisfied only by the dopamine release while doom-scrolling social media? I know I do. If you do this, then this meal is for you. Microwave cheese on a tortilla. Quick, easy, and just enough substance to be classified as a meal. Yes, folks, simply take your shredded cheese that you obviously got for 50% off at your local supermarket and sprinkle it on an open tortilla. Just like so. Seasoning? More like seasonal depression, right folks? (laughs) Now what you're going to want to do is chuck this tortilla into the microwave for one minute. Thankfully, this one we put in before the break is ready to enjoy. Once out, fold in half, cut into three, and serve with a side of your favorite sauce. Wow, that sure is food. Thanks, Rex, for joining us today. And next time, I'm going to show you how to make cereal. It'll be your new favorite dinner. It's unbelievable. What's up, everyone? I'm Kyle Moore, and welcome back to The Wreck. This is the podcast where we celebrate a world more mental and destigmatize all things mental health through sharing stories and having a good old chat. Uh, if you want more Life's Wreck content and to listen to an extended interview with today's guest, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Life's Wreck Podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Life's Wreck Podcast. Uh, before we get into it today, uh, as always, just a quick little uh, life update, uh, a little update on, on the podcast and how everything's going. Uh, this has been a, a very interesting time in my, uh, in my wellness journey. Um, getting back into the podcast every two weeks, this has been a really nice flow. But I, I've been kind of having trouble finding unison within the flow of my mental health, my physical health, um, my uh, passion, my, my work, life balance. There's just been some things that have been kind of off. So since I've been having some trouble with this, and typically, you know, you, you find that groove and you just hit it and you're like, boom, I'm in the flow and I'm going. 
but I find recently that it, it just there's just been a little bit of disruption that I haven't really been able to work through on my own. And so uh, instead of kind of swimming up current and being so proud about how, look at how great I can swim against the current and look how hard I can push against this brick wall, uh, I decided to uh, get back into therapy. And uh, I've done three therapy sessions recently. I've been, I'm, I'm going every two weeks now. And, um, and it's been great to get that back into the routine um, to have, I, I've been very appreciative of having that space, that uh, special curated place uh, for, you know, it, it's like, uh, you know, it's like the gym for your mind, right? It's, it's going to uh, work some things through, um, figure out some, some blocks that may be standing in your way uh, and having a person who is professionally creating a space um, to, to go in and do the work. So I've been really appreciating that. Uh, on the podcast side of things, I've been very happy with, with where we've been at. Honestly, it's kind of funny because with with my personal life right now, I was talking about getting into therapy because I've been having a little bit of, there's been a little friction with some of the flows in my life, but I find podcast wise, I feel like the podcast has been humming. Like the podcast has been one amazing interview after another. Uh, I've got a few um, that are going to be coming out soon that I'm super, super excited about. Interviewed Adam Pike recently. Adam's a a Big Brother Canada legend, uh, an amazing content creator uh, doing a lot of really amazing wellness content. Uh, And then I interviewed just a couple days ago, uh, Max Brown. Max Brown back in 2013 was the number one football or number one quarterback uh, in all of the United States of America coming out of high school. He was a five-star recruit. Um, He had... uh, the, the narrative surrounding Max was that he was going to be the next great football player, great NFL quarterback, uh, and Max's football dreams didn't work out, and now he makes this, he, he's this amazing speaker, uh, he talks so much, he advocates for young athletes, uh, he, he talks so much about the importance of young athletes taking care of their mental health, um, he talks about failure, uh, failing, talks about taking your lumps along the way and coming out on the other side, uh, a, a better version of yourself, he's really, really amazing, that was uh, that was an interview that it very much stands out, I'm really excited to get those uh, those couple interviews out for all of you, uh, it's just been, it's just been a lot of fun, I, I, I think that with the podcast, that's something, and this is actually something that Max and I talked about one of the last, and I, I won't spoil it, but uh, having fun along the way was, was something that uh, Max and I talked about. I really genuinely feel with the podcast right now, whether it's finding new guests, whether it's recording, interviewing, all of this stuff, it's just been a lot of fun. And so, uh, and so I hope that, uh, I hope that that, I don't know, like, I hope that you guys like hear that. I hope that you're enjoying uh, listening to the episodes as much as I've, uh, as le- much as I've been making them. Uh, one last thing, uh, and I, I don't know if anybody can resonate with this with the, the pandemic and so many people transition to work from home, but I've been working from home for uh, over six months now. Uh, about eight months and you know I thought by this time I, I kind of assumed that I would have everything figured out that I would have my my daily flow but I'm actually finding it almost increasingly more difficult to navigate the work from home uh, schedule where it's like I go from my bedroom to my living room and where else am I going you know and and actually having to kind of carve out these times for me throughout my day to get outside and and make healthy meals and take care of myself through all of it so um yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting one, but yeah, that's something that uh, I'm actively kind of in the stage of of working through right now, and I just figured I'd share. And speaking of work from home, and this is just like grade A podcasting right here because what a transition! My day job is actually what introduced me to today's guest: entrepreneur, business leader, public speaker, and former maritime service officer in the Royal Canadian Naval Reserve, Bryce Seshuk. Bryce is currently the managing partner of Global Live Capital. He was a co-founder and CFO of WinMobile. If you remember WinMobile from back in the day, uh, Bryce was on that co-founding team, as well as CEO of Global Live Communications, 
Bryce has over 25 years experience building and operating companies at Global Live, WinMobile, LaTeX Technology, uh, and PricewaterhouseCooper. Uh, he obtained a CPA CA designation at PricewaterhouseCooper and BCom Finance from Dal University, uh, good old Dalhousie University in uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Bryce served as a maritime surface officer in the Royal Canadian Naval Reserve. Uh, Bryce serves on numerous boards and advisory com- uh, committees, public, private, not for profit, and is a frequent speaker on scale-up entrepreneurship and innovation. He is the co-founder of MindFrame Connect, a non-for-profit focused on elevating the craft of mentorship and improving entrepreneurial resiliency. Given Bryce's experience, you can imagine that his interests are quite vast, but they include Canada's innovation and startup ecosystems, uh, entrepreneurial finance, mentorship, excellence, resiliency, financial literacy, political moderation, military veteran transition, fitness, travel, good food, good books, great friends. He's a, a really amazing speaker. Um, I met Bryce when he came in uh, into speak with the young entrepreneurs that I work with at the League of Innovators and did a MindFrame Connect session on anti-fragility and resiliency, two of the main topics that we talked about on the pod today. After Bryce presented, there was, there was a number of things that I liked about the session, but what made me think, oh, I want to make sure, I want to go deeper. I want to talk with Bryce more. I want to get him on the podcast. I want to learn more about him as an individual and his experiences, and I want to talk about his life uh, through the lens of mental health. Um, you know, he, he reflected during a session on how he has changed over the years of working with people and talking with people, um, which I thought was really fascinating. It's something that we talked about early on in the episode. Uh, he talked about the responsibility that we have to our mindset, uh, which I just thought is, is so important when you're talking about the agency of how you bounce back from failure uh, and the responsibility that you have to yourself uh, in terms of like your outlook on life. I thought was really amazing. Um, you know, talked about embracing the journey, seeking out uh, the opportunity for development and growth. And often those opportunities aren't uh, necessarily easy ones. There was also a very self-aware acknowledgement of, uh, of some of the privileges that exist with being able to bounce back quicker. Um, that uh, sometimes that, uh, that going from rock bottom and picking yourself up, uh, you know, dusting yourself off, uh, that there are systematic um, privileges at play that can make it easier for, for some people than others. So it was a, it was a very uh, a, a conscious um, talk on resiliency and uh, anti-fragility and just a really, really uh, amazing one and one that I was excited to get to know Bryce uh, more as a person. So it's a, it's a talk I'm excited to share with all of you. Um, our entrepreneurs loved Bryce and the MindFrame Connect team, uh, and I think you will too. So without further ado, Bryce, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? I mean, I would do the normal Canadian and Sam Fine. Um, I think that if you want to kind of drill a bit, generally I am fine, in all honesty. Mm. Like I... Yeah, in a, in a bunch of different ways. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how deep you want to go and how personal you want to get, but feeling pretty good about life. I, hey, that ball, ball's in your court. I mean, however deep you want yeah, to so go. So look, I think it would be insane for me from an overall perspective to to answer that in any other way unless I had a real health issue, uh, which I don't. So I'm happy about that. Mm-hmm. All other aspects, including health, are are to the positive. Look, I'm 51 years old, turning 52. I've had we've had an absolutely spectacular run in what we've done. I've probably, you know, since we sold all our operating businesses seven years ago, I've been able to take a step back, uh, move to an investment platforms, uh, which is a different style. 
work, do exact, have complete control of my time, mm. doing exactly what I want to do, picking my spots, do impact when I want to impact, do investment when I want to do investment, travel when I want to travel. So I've, I got control of my time and that allows me mm. to kind of really uh, uh, pick areas of improvement that I've tried to do, make sure everything's working mm -hmm. well in a bunch of different areas. And so it's, it's, it's actually almost, it would be a disservice or almost disingenuous to say that I'm not doing fine. And now the biggest mm -hmm. challenge that I actually have is finding the best purpose for what I want to do mm -hmm. now that I have complete, it's actually a funny narrative. You work so hard to get to what I call the def the definition of freedom to me is control of time. The definition of control of time mm. is when you no longer have financial worries that take away your control of time. So I got past that. Absolutely. What do you do the day after that? It's actually a conversation that we have a lot of, right? Purpose. Yeah, so that's on. fascinating yeah. because when we talk about entrepreneurship, and and I'm sure it's something that we'll touch on during this conversation, but that's when when i'm working with these young entrepreneurs and you are as well like that's the goal like when they talk about like what do you want to get out of entrepreneurship so often it's i want my freedom i want my time right. i want this control and so yeah i mean i would love to hear a little bit more about that once you reach what a lot of people say is like the peak of the mountain right. you know what's that what's that next step yeah sadly that's a very difficult situation to figure right. out because generally the guys who are trying to get to the top of the mountain have a certain wiring. And when I say guys, I mean, mm. I don't mean in gender people, Everybody. they are wired a certain way. And what you realize when you get to, let's call it financial freedom, we use that as a first mm. definition. That is actually relatively uninteresting. Okay. It is a, mm. by, it is a byproduct of the actions that you took that drove you that had purpose to get to financial freedom that is actually interesting. Mm -hmm. It's the journey, not the destination, said another way, which we've heard mm -hmm. said a lot. So the question, Absolutely. yeah, so the question becomes is, okay, great. So you got to financial freedom, you know, do you, re do, you do what you did before again? So do you go start another one and go through that whole journey again with knowing a bit more? Just find it, find another find mountain. Find another mountain, exactly. Do you, um, or do you maybe go in a different direction? And for us, mm -hmm. I would say we straddled. And I don't think I'm very... Well, I mean, let, let's start out. I mean, that idea of, of youth entrepreneurship in a world that we're both very involved in. As a youth, were you very entrepreneurial? Like, well, let's talk about those... those um, th that idea of, I don't want to work for anybody else. Like, when did that start? Was that when you were in high school or anything like that? So I didn't start any businesses, uh, like some of the tropes that you hear about kids in high school. I did not do that. What I did is I always had, uh, I was early to the job world in, in, mm. I grew up in Saskatchewan in that era. I, 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 I worked early. Uh, my grandfather was a farmer. I kind of feel like there was some influence there because you know, all farmers are entrepreneurs. I feel like I didn't Absolutely. really fully understand the, the, the small business concept, but I, I got a little bit of it. And then I figured out what I what what I would say hit me is that I, I, I like the the Globe and Mail back then wasn't a common thing that you would see in my town, if I could say it that way. Mm -hmm. But like even getting mm -hmm. access to that, seeing the stock tables, understanding, starting to learn a little bit about finance, taking an accounting course in high school, that was more the influence for me than entrepreneurship. 
Okay. It's like, I knew I wanted to go into some nebulous thing that we'll call business because there was an opportunity to, I was a mathematical numerate, but not like Stephen Hawking kind of stuff, right? More like I just got numbers quicker than the average. So I knew I wanted to translate that not into pure math, but into more finance. I don't know how I came to that realization. And so business, that meant business. And that meant, I think, ultimately getting out of my town and then ultimately figuring mm-hmm. out where to go to school. I was definitely an academically inclined path. So that's probably what I knew kind of in high school. And then I had the path kind of found its way in that narrative. Mm. With this transition that you've went through, just even hearing the fact that you're very, um, num- <clears throat> excuse me, my goodness, very uh, number oriented, analytical, and then kind of reaching a point in your life where you're transitioning to working with people where that's the opposite of black and white, right and wrong, a exactly. lot of gray area. Exactly. Like, you know, I would love if you kind of talk me through that transition of kind of a, a more analytical focus to more of a people oriented focus. Cause I think that there's overlap for sure, but those do seem like some fairly secular worlds. Yeah. It's a very good, good point. So look, I hear there are probably a couple of narratives we should go down here. One is, hmm. There's a good and a bad to numeracy or to being quite literate with numbers. One is that it's a skill that's very relevant, right? Almost in anything you do that relates to the business world. Those those who are good at that have a leg up, you know, versus those maybe who aren't as good at that. I think just natural, okay? Um, But there's some downsides, okay? One example of a downside is that the way math is taught, or at least it was taught, when I grew up, which is 70s and 80s, is very deterministic, not probabilistic. So there's an answer and you're, te- you're working to an answer, whereas they don't do a great job until you hit those stats courses in, in university. And even then it's not well contextualized at probabilistic thinking, okay? Probabilistic, if you really get right down to it, we live in a probabilistic world. There isn't really a right answer. It's a set of decisions made under uncertainty, weighing probabilities. The I came to that late, okay? And if you look at particularly startup land, particularly investing in startup land, my God, it's all probabilities, right? So it took me a while to realize that, you know, that my I, w- I was thinking deterministically too much. If I was challenged, I thought people were taking a shot at me in, in, in that deterministic mindset, as opposed to just a, a, different, a different viewpoint. And so it took me a long time to get past a lot of that mm. thinking. So that, but, but that was the, that was my mindset and that was my style that does not play well to people leadership. That does not often even play well to playing well with people. Okay. So what, what happened to me, you can get away with that if you're smart for periods of time in certain sized environments in certain eras. Okay. Mm. Then what happened for me is in the mid 2000s, we had a company of, I'm going to say a couple of hundred people. I had a department of a certain size and we recognized as a management team that had all grown up in a not, not really in corporate land. So most of us didn't have, I won't call it, we just didn't have the exposure to the corporate, like to at least see how larger structured organizations worked and what do you do in hierarchies and these kinds of things. So we realized, and actually my business partner, Tony, was a good driver for this, 
is we realized that we needed to get some, we need to elevate ourselves in this world. So we hired a coach in the mid 2000s to do 360s. Okay, so where they ask 20 odd people about you as a human and a leader or a peer or whatever the narrative is, they take this all. Yeah, how was yeah, that? Yeah, so look, it was a slap in the face, the short. So they anonymize all the feedback. They, you do this thing where you give them, okay, here's the exercise. Give me 20 names, varying shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. You do this. They go and they literally do full conversations with them all. And then they take that, those findings and they bring it back to you. Okay. And look, I don't know if it was a lack of self-awareness, which it could have been particularly back then at that point in my life, in my thirties and very hard charging as I, as you're getting the point here. Um, but I meet this guy after he's done the 20 and literally it's like a boxing fucking punch and bare knuckle punch in the face. Like I was not ready for that feedback. Yeah. I got the feedback and I, look, I had to, you know, you have choices when you, I'm going to guess it was none too, none too kind. It wasn't particularly none too kind on the issues that we're talking about. Okay. It was like, right. doesn't suffer fools, leaves bodies behind, very tough mm. on people, very short. If someone is struggling, you know, doesn't have a lot of time for that. Those kinds of comments. Okay. So I actually very, like I am, if there's one skill I have, I do think I take feedback quite well um, when it nice. is it's this kind of stuff and probably got better at it over time. And so I took this feedback, digested it. I think I may have talked to some people around me to just start talking about a, a better path. And then I, I, I made a pretty right turn on my style of leadership. Okay. So that was a big moment for me, very notable, very memorable, and was a change to my arc in how I led. Okay, so that was one. Two is I carried that forward for a while in this environment we were in before starting the wireless company. And I think I, I tried very, very hard, even in the pressure moments, to try to always remember in the back of my head this I had this kind of guy over like the great kazoo and the Flintstones over my shoulder. And I I would think <laughs> I would think about this. So great, good, yeah, all great, fine. And then we start the wireless company and it was such a chaotic project. Co created, there was a whole different culture there because of shareholder influence and style and just the nature of the project. This is not the little 200, you know, 150, 200 person entrepreneurial endeavor. No, this is yeah. you know, 1500 people all getting killed every day by Rogers, Tellis and Bell fights everywhere. They just, just chaos at all turns. So a very tough environment to be, to be um, kind of, kind of to be exercising the soft skills as effectively as I was in the prior environment. It got very hot. Okay. So I probably lost a little bit of softness in that environment. I think people, I could say comfortably. And we, you know, we fought a fire every single day. We almost lost that company many, many times. That's a lot. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. and then in 2011, so we started that thing in 08. We really started it in 09 as it relates to building the people side of that business. Um, in 11, we had a COO change, and the news, and I was CFO, and so the COO came in. He and I became friends. Um, we needed to make some management team changes, and he asked me to take over HR. So the the change. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the, the, the second big moment for me. So one was like this coaching thing that I've talked about that was what a coach does. But the second the right, second yeah. one was the guy said to me, look, I've been watching you. 
And you have a style that I like in terms of how you speak to the company, how you, how you, um, you know, we would do some public stuff on the company on to our staff and so on. And he's like, I, I, I like kind of this, I like your process thinking. I like a bunch of other things. I'd like you to take over HR. So it was really an interesting opportunity. So I, I said, yes. And I, it was a real interesting challenge and I wanted to go, I wanted to expand my portfolio to different areas and different skills that it would bring out, particularly non-financial skills. I wanted to get much wider. And so, so did you take that on because it was a challenge or because it was interesting both. to you? Okay. Yeah, both. And, and the company wanted me to, so I guess maybe mm, three yeah. reasons. So, so I took it and look, finance at that point was pretty on the rails and I had two great, uh, uh, leaders below me. And I had also at that point facilities and admin, and I had a good person there. I, I do shape my teams a certain way. And then, so then I take over this department and, and no offense to the prior guard that ran it, but in my opinion, it needed a wholesale change. And it was, it was not a process oriented department. It was quite more the, the looser side of HR. I guess I'll, I'll, use, I'll use that terminology. And I'm much more systematic in how I, I do things. So I came in, I evaluated the department. I saw someone that I thought could lead it uh, as one, as my, my second in command in that area. I promoted him, he took it. And then he and I worked together for a good year retooling the department and retooling the company. And so we embarked on some very significant cultural change, employee engagement, uh, pushing um, power out of the ivory tower at corporate to the field, which was a big, probably the biggest mm -hmm. move, um, and a whole bunch of other things that happened over the course of, yeah, of that yeah. year to change everything about how we mm. operated as a company, how we interacted with our field, and how we interacted with the customer. I was just going to say, like, I mean, how do you feel like that role changed you as a person, like as an individual, uh, when you were surrounded by a lot more than just, like you said, financials on the rails, right. and now you're putting out almost a different kind of fire with that very unique kind of personal touch to it? Um, you know, how do you feel like that changed you? Yeah, great question. So, look, with finance, again, true finance is not deterministic. It is probabilistic. So there's uncertainty and so on. But there's a box that is not the, there's a box that is got a certain size and certain boundary conditions. Mm -hmm. And I'd been doing that for quite a while and I was getting pretty comfortable yeah. with that. Okay. HR people, culture, engagement, and so on. You are now into the human condition. And in fact, you own, you co-own the human condition with the CEO. And that is a very different box that is much larger with a lot more gray and a lot more difficult to define boundaries. And so that that is how I would say the starting point of change for me happened is that it now put the, it took a different part of the brain. It took, it created a lot more empathy. When you are the one, when you are not responsible in the true classic sense, direct line for that you're a, you're an interface to it as a as a lateral colleague almost and you can actually be a pain in the ass really for it because you're not actually directly responsible okay right. and now you have now yeah. when you have responsibility and you own 
you know, metrics around turnover and around compensation and around employee engagement and around rewards and around all of the things that can go wrong in an HR organization with respect to human rights, if you want to go to the extreme, right? You're just, your brain changes and you, 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 you know, it's not pure mercenary numbers driven stuff. It is a human <laughs> condition and there's an empathy yeah. that results from that. There's the need to mm. lead differently. There's the need to ensure that the leaders in the, in the organization are thinking about leadership a certain way and the list would go on and on mm. and on. And so I think it was quite a foundational change. Some of the work that I've been exposed, some of your work that I've been exposed to has been around resiliency. Yeah. And was, was it during that time that you really started to think about resiliency in, in a different way that you were like, this is something that I might want to look at a little bit more in depth and not, not just be this word that kind of floats around a little bit, but be almost like a, a topic of uh, interest that I want to pursue? It's a very good question. The short answer is actually no. So I okay. didn't know the word resiliency. I didn't know the word anti-fragility. I didn't know any of these mm -hmm. concepts. Okay. What I knew mm -hmm. is that we come through a lot of battle from starting our first company all the way through to now we're in this big wireless company that's getting killed every day. It was just a lot of, I, the entrepreneurial journey in my experience was a sequence of firefights that, you know, we equate to kind of going to war and yeah. All of the tactics and techniques that we use to get through that, which you would now say, you would now put under the definition of resilience. We had no structure, we had mm -hmm. no framework, and in general, did a lot of things wrong, if I could, to the best practices. And in fact, what I would yeah. also say is that the thing that I hang my hat on as the main thing that got us through it, we would not have defined it effectively then, but it was more the social side of the pillars of resiliency that we think about. And that was just by, that was just a, a, a product of the environment we were in. Where resiliency came to the fore for me was actually a different journey. We'd sold the company. Okay. We'd started to invest. Yeah. We started to mentor different muscle. Mm. Okay. And then when the pandemic hit, and we saw the results of the problems and the stressors that that unleashed and how people did, like how people did or did not pick themselves up from that that started to get a, a brain churning in, in in being a little more holistically structured around imagine. where an entrepreneur fits yeah. and how to what are the pillars of high performing entrepreneurs and you know the project of our not for profit mindframe connect which was really originally around upping the game for mentors and mentees. Late in the application process for the grant that started it, myself and my co-founder started talking about what just happened through the pandemic and why are we not thinking about the entrepreneur in more holistic, athletic type terms, if I can get to the crux. And that- It's almost like sports psychology? It was very much sports psychology thinking. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we were like, okay, so we know that entrepreneurs face stressors continuously. I read the book Anti-Fragile by Taleb, and that got my brain really so so during the pandemic, I read Anti-Fragile. Yeah. So we come through the lockdown, the really difficult phase of the two months, like April, May of the or March, April, May, came out of that, took a breath. I read I, then I read Anti-Fragile. 
and I try, I, I put all those dots together, started talking to uh, this, my co-founder of Mindframe Connect guy at Dalhousie named Jeff Larson. He is close to MIT. MIT had started to think about anti-fragility and entrepreneurship as well. And so Interesting. we were thinking a lot about upping and elevating the craft of mentor and menteeship laid out of resilience through reading anti-fragile and some other things around the pandemic and then being exposed to some stuff that MIT was doing, mash that all up. And mm. that is where we started to form, get really, really structured and formal with the concept. So all okay. completely after my operating career. No, no, wow. never contextualized in that way. It was all a back, it was a back narrative. Once I understood the yeah. the more the academic and, and kind of classical concepts of resilience. That's how it went for me. For, for people who maybe listen to this podcast, obviously a me- being a mental health podcast, you know, one of the things we talk about and, and, and one of the things that I think even, I don't think irresponsible, but would be the, the, the term, but like things like resiliency are thrown around all yep. the time for everything. Yep. And the term anti-fragile is something that I haven't been really like well acquainted with. And when you, when somebody says anti-fragile, you know, I kind of think, I think tough, but yet in, you know, in mental health, we talk about vulnerability. And, and so I, I'm, I'm kind of just trying to like put this into kind of perspective. Are you, could you please explain anti-fragility to my listeners who may be kind of having a lot of the, the same questions that maybe are coming up for me? Yeah. So look, the, the concept as I understand it. So, so Nassim Nicholas Taleb is a pretty well-known mm-hmm. polymathic kind of thought leader a mathematician and so on, statistician. He wrote a sequence of books on the economics of uncertainty, probability. Mm-hmm. One, I, I'm trying to remember, I think he wrote uh, Fooled by Randomness. I think he wrote, wrote Black Swan. He's got five in, a, in this series that he calls the insert. Okay. One of them is anti-fragile things that gain from disorder. Okay, and this is the theory. Okay. It's not an easy read, but it's not an impossible read. Okay, by any means, he writes in a funny way, not really well edited, it, it deliberately. Okay, mm. but it is the foundational text of how I think about this. Here's here's how I here's how I describe it because I try to do it in the entrepreneurial context. You're rolling along in your situation as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. There's a million stressors hitting you. Okay, like you're you're failing every day at something, right? Your co-founder yeah. leaves. Yeah. Uh, your customer development discovery goes off the rails. Your product fails and is delayed by six months, and you have a runway issue. Like there's just a constant set of stressors. We'll use the pandemic because it's a nice big fat one. You're cruising along. Everything you know, you deal with your day-to-day micro failures as you do, and then a pandemic hits. And you lose all your revenue in five days, which happened to a few of our companies, multiple of our companies. Okay, so yeah. that is a very significant stressor. Boom, you come down. Absolutely. So let would define resilience, I think. I don't want, ever want to speak for them. But as bouncing back to the level of before the stressor hit as quickly and efficiently as you can with the least amount of damage. Okay, let me mm. say it that way. I like that. Okay. He then goes on to talk further, though. He said, the extension of resiliency is a concept he calls anti-fragility. And how I like to describe Mm -hmm. it is when a stressor hits, generally speaking, yes, there are negative dislocations, but there's also an opportunity set that arises in a stressor by nature of the fact that a stressor causes dislocation. And so I think what he would say is that 
anti-fragility is actually the act of almost running to the stressor to seek the opportunity in it and to get stronger from it. Okay. Now, now let's let's pick. I'm going to give two example sets that he uses to describe it. Please. Okay. One is he talks about Silicon Valley after the dot-com crash versus the U.S. financial system after the financial crisis. Okay, and he uses the example. So in the financial crisis, we have this massive banking issue. The U.S. government bails out the financial sector. They basically shoulder the debt load that arose from the mortgage crisis onto the sovereign balance sheet. And if you look at the financial system, in fact, it's very topical now, what came out of that, it actually looked a lot the same as before. And we can see, again, there's these systematically important financial institutions, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and these other banks. Again, the sovereign has to come in, they have to guarantee the deposits. There's inherent fragility there. In the case of Silicon Valley after dot-com one, there was no government bailout. There was no, no safety net. You failed, people got massively wiped out. And what happened the next day? Well, what happened the next day is the MBAs were now learned and they all started new businesses and the VCs rose, raised capital. They had, sure, they had a few tough years. And then we built, we mm -hmm. built a glorious 20 years of innovation. Now, again, we have, we yeah. did have another bubble. Let's be honest. It, excesses uh, appear. Yeah. And now we're in a reset phase of that again, but it's not being done by government backstop. So mm -hmm. he would say to you, I think that. The Silicon Valley example is far more uh, a definition of anti-fragile. The U.S. financial crisis would be far more an example of fragile. Okay. Now, the other example that he uses that I quite like is he talks about two brothers in London. One, one is a London cabbie and the other is a London banker. And the London banker has big burn rate. He's playing status games. He's making a lot of money. And then he gets fired. Okay. And then he talks about the cabbie who every single day doesn't really, you know, doesn't know where the next dollars are coming from, right? Because he's a cabbie, hand to mouth, relying completely on his own instincts and entrepreneurial abilities. And that guy has sized his life in a way and his situation to be able to deal with the inherent uncertainty of that. Who is more fragile? Well, it's interesting. You might say what well, was cabbie right he's, every day is this kind of this new fight for him in fact the banker gets fired his prospects at 50 something of getting another job might be low he's got a huge burn rate he's not ready to resize effectively in the whole status game and he's in trouble so he would say that in fact the banker is the more fragile one and how do you how do you as a banker become anti-fragile and there's a whole narrative around da 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 da. So yeah. that's right. so he goes. He has this view of um, trying to push society in anti-fragile ways. Okay, Israel, startup mm -hmm. nation, military to business. Norway's sovereign wealth fund when they discovered oil in the North Sea, mm -hmm. and they whoever the brilliant person people were in about 50 years ago in Norway that created their sovereign wealth fund. It's now the largest kind of free world sovereign wealth fund over a trillion. There's only like four or five million Norwegians and they like it'll buffer any shock that they would ever have. Whereas you look at Alberta, you know, we spent all our oil winnings in ways that we could quibble with how well spent that was. So <laughs> there are examples of again, fragile and anti-fragile and he's, he goes in a bunch of different directions yeah. with it. That's how I would narrate it. We see the benefits of searching out these tough things and going through them. Some of the, the most amazing parts of my life have been 
you know, born in a sense from the toughest times of my life. The, the peaks are a result of the valleys. And yet so many people are still so afraid of going and, and seeking out those, those potential failures, or even they do fail and they ruminate on it for, you know, for so, 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 so long. I mean, like, like, it's a bit of a broad question, but I mean, like, why do you think that that is? Why do you think that even though we have this case study of the most successful people in the world have failed over and over and over, have put their fists in the dirt, got back up, that so many people are still like apprehensive about failure? Really excellent question. I think that societally we, we have mis misnamed, mistaught, misguided, and mismentored around the benefit of failure. Okay. And I think it starts like, I don't know. Mm. There's a book uh, uh, that's just excellent. Uh, Dweck is her last name. And it's uh, oh, Mindset. Um, the mindset, mindset book okay? by Dr. Carol Dweck. Yeah. One of my Great favorites. Book. Love it. Love it. Right. Love it. So yeah, you know fantastic. the book, right? What is a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset? So start from childhood. Look around mm, yeah. right now at how people are being coddled, protected, helicoptered not allowed to take a risk, not encouraged to take a risk. Failure is viewed as a negative as opposed to a learning. It's not win or lose, it's win or learn, right? And we don't work, we have not, Canadians in particular, have not shaped a society that recognizes that failure is our job and the learning from failure is how we grow stronger and more resilient and more anti-fragile. And it's it's at all levels. Parenting, um, the if you look at even the failure of our entrepreneurs is generally viewed differently than how it is in the valley where it's a complete normal part of the process um we do we kind of shun entrepreneurs that fail or we had in uh, up until recent era if you look at our political now political is 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 not unique to canada but you think about you know trudeau does something yeah. And then let's say he changes his mind six months from now because the facts on the ground have changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, you know right. what's going to happen in that narrative, right? He gets absolutely oh, pummeled. Whereas a good political system, look, the best political environment that I can tell in my reading in recent eras, Michael Bloomberg is a mayor of New York. He had no worry about money. He had no accountability for his salary. He, that wasn't his incentive. So if you look at what he did, he was known as the mayor that really threw a lot against the wall, allowed it to failure, fail, stood up in front of people and said, this didn't work. I'm going to do this differently and so on. We are not well architected in our systems and processes to understand and to respect failure. Like if 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 the people around us would, would if there was a culture of admitting it in a positive way, narrating the learning that you can get from it and encouraging it i think we would have a much different discussion about this from a resilient standpoint from your perspective when you look back at your life yeah. what was the best failure you ever had so i think the failure that was possibly most useful to my trajectory mm-hmm. 1998 i leave the firm the accounting firm and i start a business with some other guys we run this is 1990.com one just really starting to heat up we it was a me too business it was not a very particularly durably competitive remote type business we kind of caught the wave of that up mm-hmm. 2000 and we it was it was you know we had our payroll we had our business 
when 2001 crash is very hard to narrate to people who weren't part of it if you were in the technology and web one space it was crushing okay like the amazons of the world got crushed all the way to our our crappy little business and that that business went to zero we had to lay everyone off mm. it, it, it died yeah I can imagine that's not that fun. was not fun i was young i licked my wounds i we yeah. recalibrated we went into the next phase of our lives that failure i call my true mba in business okay and that was what then allowed me to look at the next set of entrepreneurial pursuits and the inevitable failures that happened there with a lot more of a stoic i'll use that term like mindset mm. i'll use a lot more that that was the incident that i would say was the big one for me gems folks podcast was full of gems i honestly i i'm like grinning that's the best part about uh about editing this podcast is getting to listen to these conversations back and it's kind of fun because like when you first interview somebody and you're kind of caught up in the moment of asking them questions and going down these you know these different channels these different roads and picking up on little things they're saying and really kind of diving deep it's nice then after the fact to sit down and and re-listen to it uh and and just kind of appreciate it for what it is, uh, which was just, you know, a, a truly a lesson in anti-fragility uh, and a lesson in resiliency. I can't thank Bryce enough for sharing his stories, his experiences, the lessons that he's learned along the way, uh, all of the gems that uh, that we got throughout the entire episode. That was a ton of fun and a, a, an episode I'm very proud to have shared with all of you. I hope if anybody's listening from the from the uh, the League of Innovators, from uh, the LOI community, uh, that you enjoyed uh, an extended look into uh, into Bryce's background and, and uh, uh, and all that he, the amazing work that he's done uh, in the world of improving entrepreneurial resiliency. Uh, if you want to hear more from Bryce, you can head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast, uh, where we've got an exclusive extended interview with Bryce for our Patreon subscribers. And check out mindframeconnect.com uh, for more of Bryce's work in the space of improving entrepreneurial resiliency. The team at Mindframe Connect is amazing. Uh, really, truly would recommend checking them out. Uh, they're doing some amazing, amazing work. Uh, I will never be able to say enough good things about that team. Uh, and I hope that this chat has inspired you to continue to explore the world of mental health and start these conversations in your own life about the, the beautiful wrecks that we all are. And just remember that through all of it, the highs and lows, the ups and downs, the good is that life's a wreck. And I'll see you in two weeks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.